0: Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. I consider it a great privilege to be able to be here with you tonight to discuss this ever-important topic of evangelism. And so tonight what I'd like to do is just kind of have us look at this topic of faithful biblical evangelism, and I use each of those words specifically and strategically. When I talk about faithful biblical evangelism, I mean being faithful to what the Bible both describes and prescribes when it comes to the issue of evangelism and sharing the gospel rather than taking our cues from contemporary evangelical methods or trends because they're rampant today. There's all kinds of ideas about evangelism, how to do it, what it looks like, but at the end of the day, we need to take our cues from the Word of God, not from what's popular in evangelical culture of our day. And so, that being said, let me just say a couple things. When it comes to the topic of evangelism, you could spend weeks, if not months, dealing with this subject. It's so vast and it's so broad. And really, I'm gonna take either one or two sessions to basically try to deal with a a topic that is immensely broad. And so, I'm only gonna be covering, basically, just the high points of evangelism. What I'd like to do, though, is be able to take questions at the end of this session, and if we do too at the end of next session as well. So as I'm going through this stuff, I want you to be thinking and writing down any questions that come to mind, or if you have any questions as it pertains to evangelism, I want you to be able to ask those at the end so that there's clarity in everybody's mind and that there's no confusion when it comes to this topic. Now, let me just say that I spent 17 weeks at our church during the Sunday school hour several months back going over the gospel, going over the fruits and evidences of true biblical conversion, and then I even spent, I think, three or four weeks dealing with how all of that bleeds into faithful biblical evangelism. So if you want a more in-depth understanding of this topic, you can go to the website and listen to those messages. It's under the category of the the gospel series. What I'm going to do is try to take some of the high points of that and maybe truncate it into one or two messages. And the way that I want to do that is basically by Posing a number of different questions and then trying to answer and address each of those questions. Let me give you the eight questions up front and then we'll work through them one by one. We'll see how many we can get through tonight. Number one is what is evangelism? What is evangelism? Number two is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Number three is who should share the gospel? Who should share the gospel? Number four is, how do we share the gospel? How do we share the gospel? Number five is, why should we share the gospel? Why should we share the gospel? What is it that motivates us to do that? Number six, what are some of the reasons why we don't share the gospel more faithfully and more fervently and more frequently, and how is it that we can overcome that and address that? Number seven, with whom should we share the gospel? And then number eight, when should we share the gospel? Some of those are going to take longer to answer and address than others. So let's begin by looking at that first question, what is evangelism? When it comes to defining and explaining evangelism, J.I. Packer notes that it is our widespread and persistent habit of defining evangelism in terms not of a message delivered, but of an effect produced in our hearers. And yet evangelism must never be defined by the response of our hearers. Listen, it is our responsibility to faithfully and carefully and clearly present the message of the gospel, but we must never forget that it's ultimately God alone who gives life to dead sinners through the power of his gospel. As Will Metzger writes, quote, Any definition of our task that includes results is confusing our responsibility with God's prerogative, which is regeneration, end quote. And so evangelism has nothing to do at the end of the day with results. It's important to understand that. So let me give you several other things that evangelism is not. First, evangelism is not personal testimony. Listen, sharing your personal testimony with others is a great thing to do, and I would encourage you to do it, especially to the degree that you actually parallel your personal testimony with the biblical gospel. But sharing your personal testimony is not evangelism per se or the gospel itself. Second, evangelism is not social action and public involvement. Listen, fighting against things like abortion and gay marriage and fighting for things like prayer in public schools and outlawing pornography and fighting for clean drinking water in third world countries are all commendable things to do, but they're not evangelism or the gospel at the end of the day. That's social action, some of it's humanitarian work and aid, but it is not the gospel, and it's important to understand that. It's not evangelism. Nobody gets saved through those means. Third, evangelism is not apologetics. Defending the faith, again, is a great thing to do but it is not technically evangelism or the gospel per se. Fourth, evangelism is not, again, the results of evangelism, like the rejection of the gospel by some or the acceptance of the gospel by others as they repent and believe upon Christ. Those are the responses to the gospel, but they are not the gospel itself or evangelism. Fifth, evangelism is not sharing your opinion with other people. What you think about God, what you think about this, what you think about that is not authoritative. Your opinion has nothing to do with evangelism or the gospel, and it is not authoritative. Only the word of God is. And so it's important to understand that right up front. You say, okay, well, if those things are not evangelism, then what is evangelism? Well, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer writes, quote, There is only one method of evangelism, namely the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message, end quote. He says there's only one method of evangelism, namely the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. In his book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, Mark Dever writes, To be evangelism, the gospel must be clearly communicated in written or oral form. Jesse Johnson says in the Master Seminary work on evangelism, that evangelism is preaching or proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with the person and work of Jesus Christ, typically when we use those terms, when we talk about the person of Christ, we mean... That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, two natures united in one person, the God man. That is the eternal second person of the Godhead left the glories of heaven and became incarnate as the God man. So it's important to understand his person, that he's both God and man in one person. And the work of Christ deals with his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his sin destroying, Satan conquering resurrection. All three elements of the work of Christ are essential to salvation. So that's what we mean when we talk about proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you notice in all three of those definitions, there's a commonality, and it all boils down to this. Evangelism essentially refers to the act of clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message, the evangel, the good news, irrespective of the results of our hearers. Let me say that again. Evangelism essentially refers to the act of clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message, the evangel, the good news, irrespective of how the people that are hearing it respond. Whether they reject it or whether they embrace it has nothing to do with evangelism or faithful biblical evangelism. Therefore, so-called success in evangelism is measured then, if that's the definition of evangelism, it's measured by the clarity and accuracy of the gospel message given, not the results that flow from it. And it's absolutely imperative that we understand that because if we equate success in evangelism with a positive response to our gospel presentation, then number one, we'll be prone to discouragement and despair every time we preach, every time we share the gospel with someone and they don't respond positively to it. Second, there will be a great temptation to compromise the message in order to try to get the result that we want. So we'll be tempted to either water down or perhaps soften the message, either removing the offense of the cross or the demands of repentance and self-denial, and it will ultimately result in false converts who are deceived into thinking that they're saved when in fact they're not. Because they didn't hear the gospel, they heard a watered-down substitute that was given to try to compel them to get them to make the decision we wanted them to make. Listen, Jeremiah preached for 40 years without a single convert, while Jonah preached, and hundreds of thousands of Ninevites responded in repentance. You see, in the eyes of God, Jeremiah was far more successful than was Jonah, because Jeremiah was obedient to God's call, Well, Jonah was disobedient. Yes, Jonah went the second time to Nineveh and faithfully preached, but even then, his heart motives were wrong in it. And so the issue is not the response of the people, but the faithfulness of the messenger to clearly and accurately proclaim the gospel message and to do so with a right heart attitude and right heart motives. So what is evangelism? Again, evangelism essentially refers to the act of clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message, the evangel, the good news, irrespective of the results. Now, if that's true, then that raises the obvious question, and that is, what is the gospel message? What is the gospel? Well, there are several places in Scripture where the gospel is clearly outlined for us, For example, the entire book of Romans essentially serves as Paul's gospel tract. And then obviously 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4 is another quintessential passage on this particular issue. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 so you can see this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul really <clears throat> provides for us one of the best summaries of the gospel in all of scripture. Notice he writes, starting in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Okay? So that's the topic. He's dealing with the gospel. He says, Which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes and he gives a skeletal outline here of the central elements or the central components of the gospel message. Notice he says, number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that two, he was buried, and that three, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, the gospel is a message of good news rooted in historical facts centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Let me say that again. The gospel message, the gospel is a message of good news rooted in historical facts that actually took place in time, space, and history, centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. It's the proclamation concerning this perfect, finished, historic event of what God did in Christ for sinners, which they could never do for themselves. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul provides one of the clearest and most succinct summaries of the gospel in all the Bible. He reminds the Corinthian church of what is of paramount importance concerning the gospel, the good news. And notice the first thing he mentions is Christ's death in verse 3. You see, the gospel announces that Christ died on the cross as a sin-bearing substitute for all those who will ever repent and believe paying in full the penalty that their sins deserved. And so on the cross, Christ died as the sinner's substitute, paying the penalty for the life that we as sinners do live but shouldn't live. But in order to qualify as an acceptable sacrifice for sinners, Christ had to be personally perfect. Otherwise, he would not have been qualified. You have a blemish sacrifice that will never satisfy fully the wrath of God. That's why sinners, when they end up in hell, will be there for eternity. They're blemished sacrifices, and there's nothing they can do to erase that. So they will be ever burning, but never consumed. They will wish that they could die and go out of existence, but they won't. And that's why hell is so horrific, and that's why Jesus had to be perfect. He had to be a sinless substitute. That's why in the Old Testament, when you looked at the animal sacrifices, they had to be free from defect and blemish. It was a pointer to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, who would have no defect and no blemish, morally speaking. And so, in order to qualify as an acceptable sacrifice for sinners, Christ had to be personally perfect, free from sin. The scriptures teach that Christ lived a perfectly obedient and sinless life on behalf of sinners. He lived the kind of life for sinners that we should live but don't live, that fail to live. And so implicitly here in verse 3a he mentions Christ's sinless life and explicitly he mentions Christ's substitutionary death, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, this wasn't some newfangled idea that Paul came up with on his own. This is what was in accord with what all the writers had prophesied in the Old Testament. Most notably Isaiah and Isaiah fifty three, describing in detail what the death of Christ would look like, taking upon himself our sin. But then notice not only the sinless life of Christ implicit in the text and the the Christ's substitutionary death, which is explicit in the text, but notice next the Christ's burial. He says, And he was buried. You see, the gospel announces that after Jesus' death, he was taken down from the cross. And we know that he died, right? Because they were going to break his legs, but they never needed to, and they stuck a spear in his side, and out came blood and water, proving that he was dead. And after they took him down off the cross and laid him in a tomb, Jesus' burial certifies the reality of his death and points forward to the reality of his resurrection. And that's the third thing that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians. Notice, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the gospel announces that Christ rose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and appeared for 40 days to a host of eyewitnesses, more than 500 at one time in 1 Corinthians 15. According to Paul... In 1 Corinthians 15:12 12-19, the death of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the faith that we have, the preaching of the gospel, are all futile without Christ's triumphant resurrection. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. All of our preaching, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, is just a waste of time. We might as well find something better to do with our time. Paul says it's all useless if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Therefore, the resurrection is the central fact of the gospel. Christ's resurrection and then his subsequent ascension, Acts 1-9, completes the gospel. The resurrection essentially vindicated Jesus' teachings and claims. It vindicated that he was who he said he was, that he was God incarnate. What did Jesus say in John chapter 2? Destroy this temple and after three days I'll raise it up again. And that's exactly what he did. He was speaking, John says, not of the, the literal temple, but of the temple of his body. And so the resurrection vindicates the teachings of Christ, the claims of Christ, the sinless life and substitutionary death of Christ. And the resurrection, God the Father proclaims essentially that he's fully satisfied with Christ's atonement for sin. It's basically his stamp or his seal of approval that what Christ did in his life and in his death satisfied the demands of God's justice in the place of all those who repent and believe. On the cross, Christ cried, it is finished, John 19.30. And in the resurrection, God the Father essentially proclaimed, it is accepted. The resurrection was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It declared Jesus to be the Davidic Messiah, the Son of God in power, Romans 1.4. Psalm sixteen talked about how the grave couldn't hold him, declared him to be the risen Lord of the world, Acts two, twenty two to thirty six, and it's thus the basis for the believer's justification before God. Romans four twenty four to twenty five. It says Paul says there, He was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. If he doesn't rise from the dead, we're never going to be declared righteous before God. Because we're not righteous. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We need a foreign righteousness credited to our account. A righteousness that's what theologians call extra notes outside of us. Because we don't have one that's inherent or innate to us. And let me just say at this point that it's important to note that the gospel is not man's response to it. The gospel is not about what man does, but rather about what Christ did. Faith and repentance are the proper and appropriate and necessary responses to the gospel, to the good news, but they are not the gospel, the good news itself. For example, we read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. But notice that neither faith nor repentance are part of the gospel itself, but rather the appropriate responses to the gospel. Notice that Jesus didn't say, repent and believe, for that is the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is in the proclamation of the good news regarding what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. And so the response demanded by the gospel is not the gospel itself. Calling people to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ alone is true and absolutely necessary, but it's not the gospel itself, it's the response to the gospel. Calling on people to obey and to live holy lives as the fruit and evidence of their repentance and faith in Christ, again, is true and is necessary, but it's not the gospel itself. It's a response to the gospel. And the distinction between the content of the gospel and the demands of the gospel needs to be kept distinct in our minds. For this reason, to confuse one's duty with the gospel is to leave the impression that the essence of the gospel and the Christian faith is what man does rather than what God has already done in Christ. You see, the good news is a declaration about how God has has made reconciliation possible through the work of Christ. We're now calling people to repent and believe in that good news, that they might be saved. We're not telling them to go and try to do something so that they can work their way up to God and be saved. And so again, it's important to note that the gospel is a message or a proclamation of good news, again, rooted in historical facts and centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And not only do we see that from 1 Corinthians 15one to 4, but we also see it from the book of Romans, and so I want you to turn there as well so you can see this. Paul also clearly defines what the gospel is in this book. Again, this is basically Paul's gospel track, if you will. He takes an entire book to outline the essence of the gospel. In fact, if you turn to the book of Romans, you'll notice that the entire book is held together by what we call an inclusio. Two bookends, the same ideas at the start of the book and the same idea at the end of the book. Notice... In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul begins the letter by mentioning the gospel of God. And then in Romans sixteen twenty-five, he closes or bookends the letter by mentioning the gospel. As you turn back to Romans 1, in Romans 1, verses 1 to 15, he essentially introduces the main content of the body of this letter, so Romans 1, 1 to 15 is the introduction. And then in verses 16 to 17, he gives you basically in outline form the content of this entire letter. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, he talks about the gospel, which is all about the righteousness of God. You see, the essence of the gospel is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made a way to justify, to declare righteous, unrighteous sinners. The gospel is all about what we call justification by faith alone, that legal decision that takes place in the courtroom of heaven whereby God declares the believing sinner not just eternally forgiven, but eternally righteous because he credits Christ's redemptive death and righteous life to their account. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, there it is, and here's why for or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, Paul, but what is the essence of this foundational message? What is the essence of the gospel? Verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God that he's referring to is probably twofold. Number one, that God's righteousness is upheld in the fact that he doesn't sweep sin under the rug of the universe as if his glory was of no value and as if sin was really not that big an offense against him. But instead, he, he upholds his righteousness in the fact that he doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't wink at it. He actually punishes it in Christ as a substitute in the place of guilty sinners, and thus he's perfectly righteous in justifying the ungodly. That's what Romans 3, 21 to 26 talks about. Romans 4, 4 and 5 as well. And then number two, the righteousness of God can also speak of the righteousness of Christ that God gives to believing sinners, that he credits to their account through repentance and faith. And again, the word translated gospel here is the Greek word euangelion. Which means good news. And the good news is the message of salvation that in Christ, God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is, He's made a way for sin to be punished and sinners to be saved. Remember, God demands either perfection or punishment, those are our only two options. So the moment you sin, you're finished. There's no amount of good works that you can try to do to outweigh your bad ones. If you have one bad one, one blemish, you have a blemish on your record. You can't erase it. Perfection's no longer possible. Whether it's you know in an external act, whether it's in your speech, whether it's a sin of omission where God calls you to do something and you didn't do it, or a sin of commission where he calls you not to do something and you do it, or whether it's even just a motive, a wrong motive, a wrong attitude, a wrong thought, a wrong desire. Just one, and that's it. You're done forever. That's how holy God is, and that's what he calls us to. You're to be holy as God is holy. That's why the gospel is such good news, because there's not one of us who could ever save ourselves. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we've not just done it once, We've done it multiple times, and we've probably sinned in every single way that I just mentioned multiple times. And so that's the good news. That God has made a way for sin to be punished and sinners to be saved. And the way that he did this is by sending, again, his eternal divine son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Godhead, the creator of the universe, as the incarnate God-man, Fully God and fully man. He didn't give up his uh, deity to take on humanity. He added his humanity to his already existing deity. He was 100% God, 100% man. Two natures in one person. That's the person of Christ. That's what he came to do. And he did three things that made salvation possible. Number one, he lived the perfect sinless life that we failed to live, and yet God demands us to live. And in the process, he provided for us the perfect, spotless righteousness that we don't deserve and could never earn, no matter how many good deeds we did. Number two, he sent Christ into the world not only to live the sinless life that we failed to live, but he demands us to live, but to die the substitutionary death that we could never die. Bearing our sin and removing our guilt. Again, if we went to hell for all eternity, we would never satisfy the demands of God's justice. We're a blemished sacrifice. That's why hell is so horrific. It's going to be eternity of conscious torment forever and ever and ever without one moment's rest or relief. And after people have been there ten thousands of ages... The end of their pain, the end of their misery, the end of their torment is going to be no closer than it was when they first started. It's a pretty sobering reality. It causes you to be all the more grateful for your salvation, I trust, and all the more urgent and fervent in evangelism, I trust. Well, number three, not just to live the sinless life that we failed to live, not just to die the substitutionary death that we could never die, but number three to rise victorious over sin, over Satan, over hell, and over the grave. Again, validating that his perfect life and propitiatory or substitutionary death did indeed satisfy the demands of God's justice in our place. And that his resurrection guarantees our own resurrection one day. He is the first fruits of a new humanity. The first fruits was the first of the crops that guaranteed more to come of that type. And so when Christ rose from the dead, he was the forerunner, and all those who are in Christ through repentance and faith are guaranteed to rise in the same manner that he rose, in a glorified body. That's the good news. That's the greatest news you're ever going to hear. I typically tell people, look, I want you to sit down, because I'm going to tell you such good news you're probably going to want to pass out. This is far better than you hearing about you know, your long-lost uncle leaving you a billion-dollar inheritance. This is the greatest news you can ever possibly hear. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ died for our sins once for all. He doesn't keep on dying like the Roman Catholic Mass says he needs to be doing. He did it once for all time. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by a single offering. And so Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's a glorious reality. That's that's the goal of the gospel, is to bring us from a state of alienation and separation to a state of reconciliation. To bring us to an intimate relationship with the God of the universe, the most glorious and majestic of all beings that we might know him and enjoy him and worship him and serve him for all eternity, that we might dwell in his intimate and immediate presence for all eternity. What does Psalm 1611 say? In his presence is what fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. All of the tantalizing pleasures of this world, money and sex and possessions and looks and uh, relationships and all these things that we lust after and crave and desire, They infinitely pale in comparison. They will never satisfy you fully or finally. That's why he says in his presence is fullness of joy. It's a joy that's full. Every other joy in this life is not full. And his pleasures are forevermore. They never end. Every other joy in this life, the novelty wears off at some point in time. And that's why you're always desiring more. And then you get this, and then I'll be happy. And then I got that, I'm still not happy. I get this, then I'll be happy. And I got that, I'm still not happy. It's an endless cycle. Fullness of joy and forever joy are found only in Christ. Only in His presence. And that's the the great news of the Gospel. It has brought us back into relationship with the most majestic and glorious being in the universe. Every other joy is qualitatively insufficient for the longing of our souls and quantitatively too short for our eternal need. And the glorious benefits of the gospel are freely offered to all those who repent of their sins, who turn away from their sins because they hate sin itself and the offense that it is to God, their creator. Not just because they hate the guilt of sin or the consequences of sin or the embarrassment or shame of sin, everybody hates those things. You don't have to be born again to hate those things. Those are natural desires. Everybody wants to be free from guilt. Everybody wants to be free from the consequences of sin. Everybody wants to be free from the embarrassment and shame of sin. But supernatural desires, you have to be born again to hate evil for the evil that is in it and the offense that it is to God because you so love God and would never want to offend Him. That's what repentance is. It's a true hatred for sin itself and the offense that it is to God that causes you to turn away from it in thought, desire, and deed and to turn to Christ alone to save you. And saving faith is more than just a knowledge of facts about Christ. It's more than just intellectual assent and agreement to those facts. Yes, I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yes, I believe that he lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death and rose victorious to validate that he did satisfy the demands of God's justice. It's an actual entrustment of your entire soul to him, trusting him as the savior to forgive you and as the sovereign to rule you. That's what true saving faith is. And that's the hope of the gospel that's held out to all who repent and believe. That's the good news in a nutshell. Now, As you read most books, such as Greg Gilbert's excellent book, What is the Gospel?, which I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't read that, you're going to find that most authors, including him, will try to succinctly summarize the gospel into four parts. God, man, Christ, and response. And while it's not technically the gospel proper because it includes man's response, it is very helpful for evangelistic purposes. And so typically you'll hear gospel presentations summarized as follows. God, man, Christ, response. You essentially see this in Romans 1 through chapter 4. Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4, as Paul goes on to essentially define and describe the gospel in step-by-step fashion. In his book, Dever, uh, I mean uh, Gilbert describes it this way. He says, number one, or first, Paul tells his readers that God is the creator to whom they are accountable. So it starts with God the creator, and your accountability to your creator. You're a creature accountable to your creator. Paul tells his readers that God is the creator to whom they're accountable. You see, after the introductory remarks... In Romans 1, 1 to 1-15, and after that succinct gospel summary of uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is essentially telling you what the entire letter is going to be about, he launches right in to the, the, a presentation of the gospel by declaring in Romans one 18 to 18-20, notice he says in verse 18 of Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. It's very interesting because Paul starts off here in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, basically telling us that he's going to talk about the gospel. Notice he says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now I'm expecting him to start explaining the gospel, the good news. But then he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Notice he doesn't start with very good news, he starts with very bad news. And so Paul insists here that humanity is not autonomous or independent. We didn't create ourselves and therefore we're neither independent nor autonomous. In fact, we're both dependent on God for life and breath and all things, Acts seventeen twenty eight. And we're ultimately accountable to God as our creator. You see, it's God who created the world and everything in it, including us. And because he created us, he has the right to regulate us and to demand worship from us. And the interesting thing here is that Paul essentially says there's no such thing as an atheist. Notice verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have become visible. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse on the day of judgment. Everybody knew that God existed. Psalm 1 says the heavens are telling, are declaring, are broadcasting every day. Every time you get out of your house and you go and you see the sun shining and you see the glories of creation, it's like there's a megaphone shouting at you. Look at the glory of God on display. Look at the glory of your creator and your maker. Paul says here that everybody is without excuse. Everybody knows that God exists. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is moral. Notice verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in what? Ignorance? No, in unrighteousness. It's not that they didn't know God existed. Everybody knows that God exists. They just don't want to deal with that reality because that means they're accountable. They're not autonomous, they're not independent. They can't go and live any way they want to live. They need to live the way that God has called them to live. And people don't like that reality, so what do they do? They take the truth about God as creator and them as the creature, accountable to that, and they take that truth, and it's almost like a a little chest you have at the foot of your bed. You open up the chest, you put that truth in it, you close the chest, and then you sit on that chest. You say, there is no God. It's like taking a beach ball and holding it under the water. What does it do? It keeps trying to pop up, right? You're actively suppressing it, holding it under the water. That's what every single person apart from the regenerating grace of God does, with the reality that God exists. They hold down that truth because, not because of ignorance, but because of moral rebellion. I don't believe God exists because I don't want to believe God exists, because that means I'm accountable. Paul says, sorry, God made it evident within them. Everybody knows that he exists. The issue is not intellectual, intellectual not a knowledge thing. Heaven screams that there is a creator. The issue is a moral thing. And look at what Paul says in verse 21, for even though they knew God, there it is, they did not honor him, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts was darkened. When people look at the creation, it should cause them to glorify God, to honor God, to praise God, to exalt God, to marvel at God. Which one of you can speak something into existence that you desire? You desire more money. You say, give me a million dollars. Boom, and it appears. None of you, right? God spoke, and everything you see came into existence. That should cause you to worship God, to revere God. That's what Psalm 33, 6, and 9 say. We ought to stand in awe and reverence and fear at a God who's able to speak and have a universe like this come into existence. God created, and we should have honored Him, we should have glorified Him, but we didn't. We instead turned from looking at the majesty of his God and we started to look at finite things and marvel at those things and bow down and worship those things. We should have given thanks to God for giving us life and breath and common grace and provision and everything that he provides for us on a daily basis. The moment we first sinned, God should have snuffed us out that moment and sent us to hell forever. The fact that he lets us continue to exist on his earth We're squatters on God's territory. He should have wiped us out immediately. So we ought to give thanks to God for his goodness to us on a daily basis. And yet we've all failed to do that. We're characterized by dishonoring God and by ingratitude. Hearts that grumble, murmur, complain, or discontent. And so Paul indicts all humanity here saying that they have sinned, one, by not honoring and and glorifying God, and two, by not thanking God. It's our obligation as people created and owned by God to give Him the honor and glory and thanks that is due Him. To live and speak and act and think in a way that recognizes and acknowledges His authority over us, His rightful rule over us were made by him, owned by him, dependent on him, and therefore were ultimately accountable to him. That's the first point that Paul labors to make as he explains the gospel here in Romans 1. But then second, Paul tells his readers that their problem is that they've rebelled against God. They, along with everyone else. Who's ever been born did not honor God or give thanks to him as they should. Their foolish hearts were darkened, verse twenty three says, and notice they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for thing for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse twenty five for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever, amen. And that's just a revolting image. Human beings to consider their creator, this majestic being, then to kind of turn their back on him and go and decide that a wooden or a metal image of a frog or a bird or even themselves is more glorious than God, more satisfying, more valuable, that is the height of insult and rebellion against God. That's blackballing and stiff-arming your maker and preferring created created things to the Creator Himself. It's the root and essence of sin, and it results. its results are nothing short of horrific. In fact, for most of the next three chapters, Paul just keeps pressing this point home, indicting all of humanity as sinners against God. In chapter 1, his focus is on Gentiles. In chapter 2, he focuses on Jews. It's as if Paul knows that the most self-righteous of the Jews would have been applauding his indictment and his tongue-lashing of the Gentiles in chapter 1. And so he kind of pivots on a dime in chapter 2, verse 1, and he points his accusing finger at the self-righteous Jewish applauders, saying, therefore, you have no excuse. Just like the Gentiles, he says, you Jews have broken God's law as well and are under his just condemnation and wrath. And then by the middle of chapter 3, Paul has indicted every single person in the world with rebellion against God. Notice chapter 3, verse 9. He says, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Wow. What a stinging indictment. It doesn't get any more all-inclusive and comprehensive than that. And so his sobering conclusion is that when we stand before God the judge, every mouth will be silenced. No one will be able to mount a defense. God, I'm just, I'm righteous, and no excuse will be offered. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, every last one of us will be held fully accountable to God, and we will know it. Chapter 3:19 says, "All mouths are going to be stopped. And the whole world is going to be accountable. Nobody's going to be mounting an argument. Everybody's going to know they're guilty." Now, strictly speaking, these first two points are not really good news at all, are they? In fact, this is pretty bad news, right? The fact that I've rebelled against the holy and judging God who made me in his image, and the fact that he's not happy with me, is not a thought that's very pleasant. But it's an important one because it ultimately paves the way for the good news. I mean, think about it. To have someone say to you, I'm coming to save you is really not good news at all unless you actually believe that you need to be saved, that you're in danger, that you need rescue. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Pharisees? I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. I didn't come, you know, physicians not needed for those who are well, but those who are sick. They weren't righteous. They were self-righteous. They thought they needed no Savior. Well, this is only good news to those who recognize it. What does Jesus say? Those who are come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who are burdened by trying to earn salvation on your own and your conscience never lets you rest because you know you can never do good enough. You can never measure up. When you're weary of trying to earn God's favor and you're you're done and you want to just accept a righteousness that's given to you rather than trying to climb the ladder of your own righteousness, he he says, come to me, you, you who recognize you can't save yourself. This is a message of good news, but it's only a message of good news to sinners who actually recognize that they can't save themselves and are in terrible danger. Well, third, Paul tells his readers that God's solution to humanity's sin is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, having laid out the bad news of the predicament we face as sinners before our righteous God, Paul now turns to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But now... In spite of our sin, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's a way for human beings to be counted righteous before God instead of unrighteous, to be declared innocent instead of guilty, to be justified instead of condemned. And it has nothing to do with acting better or living a more righteous life. It comes apart from the law, Paul says. How does it happen? Paul puts it plainly in Romans 3.24. Despite our rebellion against God, and in the face of a hopeless situation, we can be justified, declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, through Christ's perfect life, propitiatory death, and powerful resurrection, sinners may be saved from the condemnation that their sins justly deserve. But then there's one more question that Paul answers for us. Exactly how is that good news for me personally? How do I become included in this promised salvation? Well, fourth and finally, Paul tells his readers how they themselves can be included in this salvation. That's what he writes about at the end of chapter 3 on into chapter 4. Notice Paul says in Romans 3.22 that salvation, the salvation of God... The salvation God has promised comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is for all who believe. So how does this salvation become good news for me, and not just for someone else? How do I come to be included in it? By believing in Christ, by trusting Him and no other to save me. Turning from my sin and trusting Christ alone. Paul says it this way in Romans 4:5, but to the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so having looked at Paul's argument in Romans 1-4, through we can see that at the heart of his proclamation of the gospel is the answer to four crucial questions. One, who made us and to whom are we accountable? And the answer is the triune God of the universe, the one true and living God. Second, what is our problem? In other words... Are we in trouble and why? And the answer is sin. We've all exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man. And we're justly condemned before God who demands perfection or punishment. Third, what is God's solution to that problem? How has He acted to save us from it? And the answer is Jesus Christ. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then number four, how do I myself come to be included in that salvation what makes this good news for me and not just for someone else it's the response of repentance and faith in the person and finished work of jesus christ and so we might summarize these four points like this god man christ response as gilbert does in his book so helpfully that's the gospel in a nutshell you could take the gospel from creation to recreation and you could spend months dealing with it. That's what we did on Sunday morning in Sunday school several months back. Or you could share the gospel in probably one or two minutes. You're going to find throughout the course of your life, before the Lord takes you home or before he comes back, hopefully you'll have many opportunities to share the gospel. Sometimes you'll have opportunities where you'll have months or years where you're interacting with family members or coworkers over long periods of time and you get to share comprehensively the gospel. Sometimes you might be sitting in a barber's chair and you only have 20 minutes to share the gospel. Sometimes you might be in a grocery checkout line and you spark a conversation and you only got two minutes to share the gospel. Those are the essential elements of the gospel, and you can essentially essentially expand those or truncate those as much as you want, but those are the essential things that you'd have to start with, that God is the creator of all mankind. So let me just give you a brief one-minute truncated gospel presentation or two-minute gospel presentation. It might go something like this. The good news is that the one and only God, the one true and living God, the triune God of the Bible, who is holy, made us in His image and for His glory, that we might know Him and trust Him and worship Him and obey Him and enjoy Him forever. Unfortunately, however, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, cutting ourselves off from God. We've all failed to live for the purpose for which God created us to live. And thus we're justly condemned before him to an eternity of conscious torment in hell, because again, God demands from us either perfection or punishment. those are our two, only two options. And since none of us are perfect, we must be punished. But thankfully, God is not only holy and just and righteous, he's also merciful and loving and gracious. And in His great love, God made uh, God became a man in Jesus lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on the cross, fulfilling the law himself and taking upon himself the curse of a broken law and the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted, and he now calls us to repent, that is, to turn from our sins and trust in Christ alone as the Savior to forgive us and the Sovereign to rule us. If we repent of our sins and trust Christ alone to save us, we will be saved. We will be declared righteous before God. We will be indwelt and empowered by His Spirit to live a holy and transformed life that honors and glorifies Him. And one day when He comes back, we're going to get a new resurrection body. Free from sin and sickness and suffering and sorrow and death to dwell in His intimate and immediate presence for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. That's essentially the gospel in a nutshell. And so, again, over the course of your time, you're going to have opportunities to share those central elements. God, man, sin, or, or what is it? It's God, sin, Christ response with plenty of people, hopefully. But that's essentially the flow of the gospel, the good news. It starts first with the bad news. God is your creator and judge. You've sinned against him, and therefore you're under his wrath. And then the gospel turns to the good news. But Jesus has lived and died so that sinners might be forgiven of their sins if they repent and believe in him alone. And so first we answered the question, what is evangelism? We essentially said that it comes down to clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message, the evangel, the good news, irrespective of the response of the hearers. And that led us to the second question, what is the gospel, the good news? We basically said that it is just that, it is good news. And the good news is basically contained, we said, It's a message of good news rooted in historical facts centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And as you're sharing that, you're going to start with God the creator. You're going to talk about man's accountability, the fact that he's sinned, he's separated, he's justly condemned. He can't do anything to save himself. His only hope is Christ coming to save him. Dying in his place, giving him the righteousness that he needs, and rising again to validate that his life and death did satisfy God's justice, and ultimately, through repentance and faith, they can be saved. Let me stop there tonight. There's plenty more to talk about, and I don't want to start anything more tonight. So let me just stop there, and then I'll just take any questions you have, and then next week we'll get probably more into some of the practical elements of how to share the gospel. Who should share the gospel? What happens when we're rejected in sharing the gospel? Um, talk about who should we share the gospel with and talk about all the various opportunities you have with family members and neighbors and how to think through those types of things so Lord willing we'll get into that next week today was more of the foundational stuff of what is evangelism, what is the gospel next next time we meet will be a lot more of the practical how do we share the gospel and how do we handle a lot of those things So, let me just go ahead and pray for us and then we'll take any questions that you guys have Father, again, thank you just for the privilege we have to being exposed to the truth we've been exposed to. We fully recognize that there's many around this globe who have never even heard the gospel. They've never heard the good news. So the information they have about God is only enough to condemn them, not enough to convert them. It's a frightening reality, Lord. It weighs heavy upon our hearts. It causes gratitude to well up in us, realizing that You've exposed us to truth. We don't deserve it. could have left us in our sin and justly condemned us, but in your graciousness you not only sent Christ to us, but you've given us the Word of God. We have the written revelation of God in our hands, and most of us have many copies of it. Well, some around this globe have never even touched a copy of the Scriptures, have never read it, never even heard it. Lord, I pray that that would stir within us a heart of gratitude, that we've been exposed to the gospel, we've been saved from our sin, and that it would ignite and light a passion within us to go and to spread that same good news like wildfire to everyone in our sphere of influence, even praying that the Lord would raise up people to go and take this message to the uttermost part of the earth so that Christ would be known and praised, not just here in plantation and not just here in America, but among all the peoples of the earth, because we know, as Revelation 5 8 tells us, that with His blood He purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Lord, we want to see all of the elect hear and heed the gospel. So strengthen us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Any questions you guys have, either based on what you heard tonight or just based on evangelism in general? Yeah, so that's a good question. Basically, evangelism should really be the thrust of our entire lives, I would say. So you're describing something that's probably more formal and saying, hey, let's get together with a couple people or one other person and let's go for the specific purpose of evangelizing people. Let's go to the mall or let's go to such and such park or let's go where there's probably a lot of people and let's go try to evangelize. Let's go to downtown Fort Lauderdale or wherever you might go. That's a great idea to go and do that. Obviously, Jesus sent out people in pairs in Luke chapter 10. You see that. And so that that's a great model to go and do that with. I think also um, the whole thrust of our life should be evangelistic, though. We shouldn't have evangelism on our minds only for the sense of formally going out periodically to do that. But I would say every time you leave the house in the morning, the whole tone and tenor of your life should be God. You know, you left me here as an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5.20. What does an ambassador do? He represents somebody in a foreign land where they're not there. So they're there to represent him in their stead. And that's what, you know, Paul says there, you know, that God is pleading with sinners through us. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation that we would basically beg and plead with people to be reconciled to their God. So if that's why God left me here to be an ambassador, because I could do everything else better in heaven... Right? I mean, when God takes me to heaven and I'm glorified, I'm going to worship him a lot better. I'm going to obey him a lot more faithfully. The one thing I'm not going to be able to do is evangelize and share the gospel. So if that's why he's left me here, or at least one of the reasons, I want to be faithful as an ambassador. I want to be praying, Lord, I'm going to work today. You have providentially placed people around me in my sphere of influence. Help me to be salt and light in this particular environment. Open up doors of gospel ministry opportunity, as Paul prays in Colossians 4.2. You know, so that I want to be praying that before I'm leaving my house every morning, especially if I have a secular job where I'm going to be interacting with, with unbelievers on a daily basis. And I think the more you do that as the pattern of your life before you leave, you're far more conscious and cognizant, especially when you're praying for people by name, coworkers. You're a whole lot more sensitive when you get to the office place and there you are by the water cooler and you prayed for that person this morning and you're thinking, Lord, give me an inroad right now to share the gospel with this person or maybe to say, hey, you want to go grab lunch today? There's something I want to just kind of chat with you about and just sit down and say, hey, you know, have you ever heard a clear presentation of the gospel? Can I share the gospel with you? Or whatever it might be, and uh, so i 'm proactively and strategically looking, or uh, when I go to the barber i 've got a captive audience every time I go. you know when I used to live in West Palm, I used to go to the same barber shop there was four guys that worked there, and all four of them heard the gospel over the time that I was there, you know because I had a captive audience for thirty minutes or twenty minutes while they were cutting my hair, and I was going to try to be strategic with that time. you know sometimes they gave me bad haircuts because they didn 't like to hear the gospel, but now i 'm kidding but but, I mean, you're thinking of those things. I used to, you know, be a member of a gym up in West Palm Beach, and I got to know a lot of the people in that gym for the purpose. Sometimes I'd hardly get a workout in because I'd end up sharing the gospel with someone and going back and forth. There was, you know, one particular guy from the Church of Christ that I would constantly be interacting with and all kinds of people. So just frequenting the same restaurants a lot of times so I would get to know the servers in those particular restaurants and things like that. So it's yes it's good to do formal evangelism as you go out with somebody for that purpose but the whole tone and tenor of our life should be have an evangelistic thrust to it lord you've placed these people providentially in my sphere of influence don't let me be so naive to that reality don't let me be so self-absorbed and so self-consumed that i don't see them and the need there for the gospel, or I do see it and I'm indifferent to it, or the fear of man is driving me, you know, so I want to be working through those things and constantly praying and looking for opportunities. I I don't have a guilty conscience, like I got to share the gospel with four people today. I know some churches kind of lay that on people. No, I'm just constantly praying and looking for open doors of opportunity, and some days there's some, some days there's not, but I'm praying and looking for opportunities and looking to take advantage of that with you know people that God's placed around me. I think that's the most effective form of evangelism is what we would call lifestyle evangelism with people that you know well, because they get to watch your life. They get to watch you go through trials and see how you respond. I mean, that's the whole point of first Peter three, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen there. They're, these people are suffering, and yet they have such a hope in the midst of suffering. You know, Peter, Peter says, "Always be ready to give a defense, an answer, a reason, an apologetic for you know the hope that's in you when people ask you, and do it with gentleness and respect." You know, so ho- hopefully people are asking us. Hopefully people are seeing us live different lives where we have hope amidst hopeless situations, where we have joy when everyone else is joyless. You know, when everyone else is slandering the boss and we're speaking well of the boss. What is it that's different about you? And so I think that's typically the most helpful form of evangelism is because people get to watch you live out the gospel and it validates the message that you're preaching, that this message does have power to transform because this person's different. They love the most unlovable and most difficult people, you know? They don't respond you know, and retaliate when people you know, provoke them. But what, what is it about them? I would never respond the way they respond. I would never have joy and hope in that situation. So to answer your question, I think, that, yeah, it's good to have formal times where you go out for that purpose with, with other people. And then other times you, you can do it just informally as you know a, a daily part of your life and i would go with people that maybe have done it before or, or you know can help you if you're not as far along to encourage you and kind of you know and comfort you and encourage you as you're out there doing it and you can even just watch what they do for a while you know so. does that answer your question yeah any any other questions Nadia um, thank you for this presentation it was worth coming here to see the gospel. Oh, praise god Uh-huh. Because
1: faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word uh-huh. But I've heard, you know, like
0: when you share the gospel, you don't quote actions. You just explain. I'm explaining scripture. I may not be quoting verbatim scripture verses and stuff like that. Like that, that would be like maybe taking the idea of the Romans Road or something like that, you know, and. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then, you know, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And then the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And That's fine, but the point is you need to communicate the truths of the gospel, the truths that are contained in Scripture. And as they hear those truths, God's going to authenticate that in the hearts of the people. Uh, You know, like Christ, you know... God is the, the the creator, and He's created you in His image and for His glory. That's essentially Genesis one twenty six and Isaiah forty three seven merged together. You know, God calls you to be holy as He is holy. It, it, that's First uh, Peter one sixteen, which is a quotation of Leviticus. Eleven forty four and nineteen two and stuff like that. You know, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans three twenty three. So I'm basically just walking through. I may not be quoting verbatim because that may just be awkward and unnatural trying to force specific you know scripture quotations into a conversation with someone where I'm sharing the essential truths of the gospel. But those are truths that are rooted in scripture per se. Does that make sense or no? Yeah. Of course. Yeah.
2: I'm
0: just used to thinking and saying this way. But, well, Romans 10.17 is the verse you, you quoted. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word about Christ or the word about the Messiah is literally what that is in Romans 10.17. So what that essentially means is the message of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the message of the gospel, the word about Christ, the word about the Messiah. It's not necessarily saying, hey, you have to quote verbatim scripture verses or people won't get saved. It's the truths about the Messiah, about the gospel that God uses. Does that make sense? It's more helpful when you can quote scripture and things like that but oftentimes when I'm communicating the gospel, it is scripture. I just may not be citing verses, or it, it's not verbatim from the verses per se, but it's the essential content of those verses. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, Robert? Yeah, I think
3: that for the unbeliever, it uh, doesn't mean much for in the Romans three twenty 23. like, what is that, Charlene? <laughs> he doesn't know what it is because he is not understanding all those the scriptures. Yeah. And I know the important is, 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 is good. because I know that there's a lot of different methods that people are invented for the years to try to share the gospel. Some of them are pretty good to use, but uh, uh, Brian was teaching about the natural men, in, in Corinthians, yeah. and they don't understand the things of God. You mm-hmm. will not understand the spirit of God to commit to them. Mm-hmm. But I remember those years. When I learned that uh, you have to put all the scriptures and give it to the person. But as you go through, you understand they don't even know what is that Romans, What is that? You no know, in First Corinthians. What is that? They never been really exposed to a Bible a church, mm-hmm. so they don't know what the name of the books are sometimes. So it's good. Like if you said if, if you understand, you know, given the understanding of the passage uh, today. You know. Yeah. Now my question is about the church. and I see since you came to us over here, uh, I've been more aware, more open, concerned about the church itself. Uh, I mean, for some reason, I see that we have more unbelievers in the church today than ever I've yeah. seen before. And that's even harder because, you know, I mean, how you share the gospel with a person that thinks that it's really Christian and has been in the church for a long time? Uh, that's kind of like hard for me to see more because you've been treating this person like Christians and now, out of the blue, they're, they question even their own salvation and they're like, I thought it was a Christian, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How can you have uh, like some uh, discernment, I will say, probably to understand if the person is or is not, and how can you do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously God's the ultimate judge. You know, Second 2 Timothy 2.19 says the Lord knows those who are His. He says after that, this foundation stands short. You know, those who name the name of the Lord will abstain or turn away from wickedness. But God, at the end of the day, is the only one who genuinely knows who are saved. I mean, Jesus says only those who persevere to the end will be saved. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, working to be saved or they're trying to earn their salvation. True believers persevere to the end because God preserves them, 1 Peter 1, five. But the bottom line is, many people make a good start. I mean, I, I just Brian and I were just talking to Todd Murray when he came, and we had heard the news before. But one of my seminary professors just defaulted, you know, morally. You know, he had been having an affair for five years while he was teaching me in seminary. It's the second, you know, pastor that's been close to me who's defaulted morally. And you'd hear some of these guys preach, you'd hear them teach, and you'd say, Wow, these guys are just powerful preachers but living a double life the whole time. I mean, five years he's involved in a, an adulterous relationship. And I understand that he's not responded super well. So now, obviously, that calls into question the authenticity of a guy's faith like that. Is he a really a genuine believer or not? So it's amazing, you know, how God can... Satan can even use people, and people can have huge impacts on people, because what he taught was truth. So God can even use truth from an unbeliever. He does it from Balaam, you know, a donkey, and he does it in different situations. I mean, Judas was sent out in Matthew 10.4 to go preach the gospel and perform miracles along with all the other, you know, apostles. So it's a frightening reality, and that's why there's such a soberness to living a holy life. And that's why we're constantly preaching that, you know, Hebrews 12:14. without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're not saying you've got to earn your salvation. Christ alone is the ground of your acceptance before God. But James is clear in James 2 that those who are truly justified, you know, that faith that justifies or declares someone righteous never remains alone but always necessarily results in a life of holiness a life of good works, a life of sacrifice and service, that's not the ground of your acceptance, but it is the necessary proof and evidence without which you've never been justified because Christ transforms people's lives. And so as you're interacting with people within the body and you're noticing things, I would just say based objectively upon the word of God, what it says are the marks and evidences of a true Christian. We have the great privilege, Galatians 6, 1 says, and Matthew 18 says, to go to a brother or sister that we see in sin you know Galatians 6 1 says you know if anyone's caught in a trespass you who are spiritual or really you who are walking in the spirits the idea that's what he just talked about in Galatians 5 restore such a one you know in a spirit of gentleness taking heed to yourself lest you too be tempted you know tempted one to self-righteous pride (laughs) glad I don't struggle with sins like that or self-tempted to fall into that same sin But that's uh, the obligation of all of us, is to be involved in one another's lives. That's why we're always concerned, Proverbs 18.1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound judgment. People that start to drift from the church, start getting out on the fringes. People who are living in sin don't want close-range accountability. They don't want close-range relationships. They don't want to be around people who are living holy lives, who are passionate around the truth, because it's condemning their conscience. Anytime you see somebody drifting, you start to get a little bit concerned. Anytime you see somebody in sin, you start to get concerned. And that's why we have the opportunity, the privilege, and really the obligation to go and talk to that person. Do it in a loving way, you know, inquiring rather than accusing. But, hey, you know, help me understand. I've noticed this. Can you help me understand what's going on? I, I love you and I'm concerned what I'm seeing here. And... Sadly, because of the gospel and the word that's been preached in America, everybody's considered a Christian as long as they make a profession of faith irrespective of what their lifestyle looks like. And so there are a lot of tears mixed in amongst the wheat. And Jesus said, it's going to be like that. Don't pull them out. We'll do that at the end of the age. We'll separate them. So it's a sobering reality that there's going to be some people that you probably thought we're going to be in heaven and you're not going to see them there there's other people that are going to be there you didn't think you'd see them there I mean seriously it's gonna be shocking you know so it's a sobering reality for our own hearts to keep short accounts of sin and then it's a sobering reality for us to demonstrate love we are our brother's keeper you know to encourage other people in our sphere of influence and when people are drifting or people are in sin to be able to go and just lovingly and graciously confront them and call them to repentance and faith and holy living. So. Pastor. Yes.
2: I'm going to keep quoting verses. And once I'm saved, I'm saved for all eternity. And some of them say, the Lord had removed my sin as far as is from the West. Uh-huh. And they're quoting verses that they are forgiven. Mm-hmm. But yet they, they continue practicing sin mm-hmm. they, they say they keep the idea saying I am forgiven I am forgiven past, present and future but they keep on living uh, and they have hidden sins and they keep doing some of them finally came out openly and is known to a lot of people while most of it you could, you don't know uh-huh. and they preaching and they say mm-hmm. and little, and they are Christian and the little they said Oh, you don't want to be like that yeah. it, it, openly it's,
0: it's a big shame yeah. yeah there's probably a lot of people who have false assurance you know who, who quote verses like that those, those are true and they're glorious truths for those who have genuinely repented of their sin and trusted Christ and are being progressively transformed by the power of the spirit that's the evidence of true faith Now, if I see somebody that doesn't have any evidence of true faith, I try to help that person see, yeah, that's a glorious promise, but that promise is restricted to people who have truly repented, that is, turned from their sin, trusted in Christ, are now indwelt and empowered empowered by the Spirit and are being progressively transformed and conformed to the moral image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, I don't see that in your life. Can we talk about that? and just try to help them understand because there's going to be many Jesus said in Matthew 7 not just one or two many are going to say to me Lord, Lord you know we did this and we did that and he's going to say depart from me I never knew you you who practice lawlessness I mean that's a shocking reality that people are going to get that far and think that they were saved and many people are going to think that they were saved and they're going to be exposed on that day and it's too late at that point it's a sober warning for us in our own hearts dealing with sin, and it's a sober warning for those God's placed around us to you know, love them by calling them to the truth. Emmanuel. The, the gospel,
2: I don't know how you presented it in the Great Commission, how would you compare those two? Because when you know, like share the gospel with someone, being just them to church, I mean, where the discipleship played, what kind of role was that?
0: Yeah, the the Great Commission is really a more comprehensive picture. We're talking about evangelism, which is sharing the gospel, the good news. That's the initial stage of disciple making. So in Matthew 28, you know, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. All that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's one main verb, one main imperative there, make disciples. And there's three participles telling you how to make disciples. By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So the implication is you need to leave here. You need to leave this mountain where I'm talking to you and these 500 people. And you need to go, and you need to... Share the gospel. It's not explicitly stated there, but it's implicit because you only baptize people who are believers who have heard the gospel, have repented and trusted in Christ. So the implication is go, share the gospel. That's evangelism. But once they repent, you're to baptize them in the name of the triune God. They're publicly identifying their allegiance to and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then you're to teach them to obey you're not just to teach them information, you're to teach them to obey this information, all that Christ commanded. Well, that's a lifelong process that takes place in the context of a local church. And that's the pattern you see in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches, he says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And the next thing they do is they repent, they're baptized, they're added to the church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. That is the lifelong process. of I mean, a disciple is a lifelong lover and learner, an uncompromised follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who's committed to learning everything that he said and committed to obeying everything he said. That's what a disciple is. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. It's not like, hey, discipleship's like an advanced level. Everyone who hears the gospel and repents then becomes a disciple. They've become a lifelong learner of Christ and and a follower of Christ. So we would say evangelism's the initial stage of the Great Commission, but there's so much more to it because the, the, the whole purpose of the Great Commission is making disciples, and that's a lifelong process. And then seeing that process replicate itself. I'm going to talk Sunday morning, you know, because it's interesting. Paul says, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That first verb, learned, is actually the Greek word for discipleship. You were discipled by me. And I'm going to talk about the importance that every one of us should be a disciple-making disciple which implies, one, that I'm a disciple, I'm under someone learning from them, and now I'm going and I'm making disciples, and I'm teaching them to go do the same.
2: Well, because what I'm saying like Robert, he talks about you, know, you go to church and you find people, and I, I mean, it seems like that's a big drop there, because people go and they share the gospel, and maybe the person next step, then they go to another church, they just get lost. And, you know, it, I guess maybe people are more so sort in of the mindset, that's the job of the church, to just... I guess, equip the people and people kind of just wander around and they're not being discipled.
0: Who, people in the church? In
2: general, like when he talks about churches, you find people in so many churches that they're just wandering around, you know. But I mean, discipleship seems to play a big role where people can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, and Savior.
0: That's the role and responsibility of the local church, is discipleship. And the leadership of this church is trying to do it. We say it every week from the pulpit. If you want discipleship or counseling, please come see us. And many people have taken us up on that. And other people, you know, not so much. And you try to pursue people you see drifting. And you know the Lord's sovereign over all of that. But we're we're trying to do the best we can. Pray for us as a leadership that we would be faithful.
2: Now I would say to, this church in yeah. In general, just the pattern of discipleship is a wonderful thing. For people to learn, that individuals in the pulpit to learn, practicing discipleship where they decide. Like you say, you want know, to Sunday, but that's the Jay Park. Like if we go evangelizing, and say you, you, you talk to people and they come to the church, it seems like it would be good to have maybe a particular person discipling that person. Because the leadership can't, say the church grows to 500 people need people in the church discipling.
0: Everybody in the church should be, you know, a disciple-making disciple to the point where you're proactively looking to grow, and then you're proactively looking to go and disciple other people. You're right. It's interesting. In Romans fifteen fourteen, Paul makes an astonishing statement that I find so interesting. You know, he says here in Romans fifteen fourteen. 14... And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. He says three things. I'm I'm convinced of the Roman Christian church. He's not talking to the leadership. He's talking about every pew sitter there. Convinced of three things about you Roman Christians. One, you're filled with goodness. That deals with their moral character. You're filled with all knowledge. They have a comprehensive comprehension of the word of God. Then he says you're able to admonish. It's the Greek word neutheteo. Some of you may have heard of nouthetic counseling. It, it, you have the ability to take truth and put it in someone's mind in a way that they can understand it and apply it to their lives. Paul says that's true of the Roman Christians there. Every one of them is in a position where their character is godly, they have a comprehensive comprehension of the word of God, and they're able to instruct and teach and admonish and encourage and disciple other people. The Roman Church wasn't farming out their counseling to the you know the secular Christian counselor down the road. It was taking place within the body of Christ. Everyone was encouraging and counseling one another. That that's how it should be in the body of Christ. We should aspire to that very thing. You know that's the goal. And I think you're bringing up a good point. Is I think there's a great deficiency in evangelism where we have confused evangelism the goal of it being decisionism rather than discipleship and so the goal is to try to get someone to make a decision and you try to lead them in the sinner's prayer and then once you've got them to pray it's kind of a notch on your spiritual belt and you can kind of pat yourself on the back and say man I got another convert I want another soul and then you look around and the church never gets any bigger and two years from now that person's still living in the same sins they're never in church they're doing the same things well they, they weren't really a convert you see what I'm saying? So it's interesting when Jesus goes out, he says, You know, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me in Luke fourteen twenty five it says large crowds were following him. And he turned and he said, If anyone would come after me, you know, he must hate his father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister Yes, even his own life. Otherwise he can't be my disciple. And all of a sudden, the crowd starts thinning out, you know, and then he kind of gives it two illustrations of counting the cost when you're building something. And then, you know, if you're going to rush out to war, make sure you've got enough people on your side. You go out with 10,000 and they got 20, you better be ready to give them a peace treaty. His whole point is count the cost of what you're getting involved in. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. But you're giving up tin so that you can have gold, you know? But, but it is a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. You're following Christ on the Calvary Road. But that's not really the message that's communicated in evangelism. We try to, like I said, water it down to get them to make a decision. But the goal is to make a disciple of Christ, to faithfully help them understand the gospel, the good news, and then help them to understand the demands that the gospel places on their life. Repentance and faith and a life of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And typically that last part is left out. And so people don't have a mindset of discipleship, a lifelong discipleship in the church today.
2: So i, I I've had a to a church where people actually believe that you can be a Christian, but not a disciple. Like Mm-hmm. I'm like grace yeah, God which is, church, which and is, is, I, is mean, and I mean, that's what you have. You people go out and they present the gospel to people and they tell them this and they tell them that, and then they accept And the person, and it bears, and it comes, it doesn't bear any fruit. You know, their lives doesn't bear any fruit or anything, and they just have a profession. Where a big key is, if you have disciples, if you have a strong foundation of discipleship in the church, you will know. That person will let you know that they're not a Christian, and they're they're rejected because you know the foundation for discipleship is there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a false dichotomy that the Scripture knows nothing about. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple.
2: It's our books. Yeah. What do you do with a person that, uh, that you shared with, and and, and her response? We've shared several times, and the response to me one time was, "I'd love to believe. I'd love to have that." That's it, I mean, it's like, you know, you're thinking, okay, now God's the light, I mean, what do I do? <laughs> but I still have a relationship with this person. I mean, and the only thing I try to do is constantly, you know, and, and God did this, and you know, and, and point to God and mm-hmm. everything that I'm talking to about, but that, you know, do you, again, share the gospel? that whatever? over what do you do with a person that, you've done it several times, and, it's, it's, and they're telling you, I'd love to have it, I just, I do it. I mean, I get stuck with her on God because she's telling me there's no God, you know. So, but you know what I'm saying? How much do you... You're continuing to have a religion with this person. You know, she's a friend of ours. Yeah. She calls Robert time something breaks in her house. <laughs> and whatever, you know? So it's like, you know. Uh-huh. And yeah, she's Amy's mom. So what I'm saying is, what do you do? You just...
0: Just keep preaching the gospel as often as you can. Warn them about the sobriety of their, you know, the precarious nature of their predicament, it's not a light thing that you're outside of Christ, you know, you you could die tonight, Christ could come back tonight, and you're headed for a a Christless eternity, there's nothing more horrific in, in all of the universe, I mean, I've often used the illustration, you know, when I used to grill on my at my house and sometimes the burner was broken and the flames would get real high and I'd burn my hand and you know singe my hand and I, it's excruciating pain for like 15 seconds all I'm just recoiling in agony and just thinking about relief from that pain and Jonathan Edwards used to say and every time I felt pain I would think about the agonies of hell and I think about that pain magnified a billionfold You know, forever and ever and ever without one moment's rest or relief. And it's just the most horrific reality in the universe. And I want to try to bring sobriety to a person that maybe takes something like that lightly. And I just want to help them understand you are condemned before a holy God. And God is offering pardon to you freely through Christ. All you have to do is repent and believe and submit your life to His Lordship. You know, that's where true joy comes from. I can't make them believe. You know, that that's a sovereign and supernatural work that the Holy Spirit has to do. He has to regenerate them. It, it's going to be foolishness. It's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be something of indifference to them unless the Spirit comes and regenerates them and opens their eyes and, you know, gives them the desire and power to repent and believe. But... I'm just going to keep calling them to repentance and faith and warning them about just the horrific situation they're in. And just thinking, you know, when you're in hell for all eternity, you're going to think of all the times when I shared the gospel with you and you rejected it. And that's going to play through your mind and think, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I respond? I had every opportunity. That will haunt your conscience for all eternity. You know, now is the day of salvation. Second Corinthians six. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart like they did in the day of, you know, Massa Meriba. Hebrews three and four. And I just want to bring sobriety to the situation and hopefully call them to repent and believe, and just trust the Lord's providence. You know, if it's not through me, hopefully He'll bring another messenger. Hopefully He'll bring providential circumstances that'll bring them low and humble them. You know. But I think we all weep and grieve. You know, Paul said in Second Corinthians six ten, "I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing." He even said in Romans nine one to three, "I wish that I could be accursed, you know, for the sake of my brethren. If it was possible for me to be damned so that they could be saved, I, I would be willing to do that." That's how burdened I am for my kinsmen according to the flesh. Valerie, did you have a question? When do you stop? Yeah. yeah. E- either when you die or when they die or when or, or when they become violently opposed to it. Like Matthew 7, 6, Jesus talks about casting your pearls before a swine yeah. to the point where they're violently aggressive, uh, you know, uh, just aggressive against you. I have a particular family member who I actually saw this week. She was down visiting my sister from New Jersey. And my opportunity to share the gospel with her is somewhat limited these days. She's heard it before, but she's doesn't respond super well and i don't want to keep jamming it down her throat i want to respect her i don't want to be abrasive to her i want to live a transformed life before her and trust that god will open doors of opportunity i have opportunity sometimes to share the gospel with her husband he wasn't here this time but hoping maybe he'll get saved and he'll share the gospel you know but some some people it's just more difficult than others and and when they've made it known that they don't want you sharing the gospel or are violently opposed to it all right i'm not going to keep casting my pearls for a swine here, I'll pray that God would use somebody else to bring the gospel to them. You know, but if they're open to hearing it, and, I, and they still have breath, and I still have breath, I'm going to keep sharing it with them, and keep praying for them, keep trying to live a transformed life before them. Emmanuel, do you have a question or not? Well, uh,
2: like at the workplace, um, you know, people like using filthy language, and, and sometimes you know you think about just correcting them, but then you think about you know, they really need the gospel, they won't just need to just correct them Yeah. on their filthy language, but then it's, it's grievous too sometimes and what would you say on that? What would you say to balance on that? And I mean, you, it's not that I haven't shared the gospel you know, you know as the work obviously, you don't have the, the complete setup to really explain everything mm-hmm. but you, know, you do talk to people but they're needing, like you're your friend I mean, you know, there's conflict. I don't know how close you all are with her, but you know, there's tension in the relationship because them being believers, you all being believers, and they're not believers. And it's like, how do you the balance, you know, between that? With the person saying on the work with all the toughing and gone do you do you become like a nuisance where you know you I can not go report it at the job, you know, you know, because I mean, really, you know, it's, it's a it's a place where people should be appropriate and it shouldn't be filthy language, but there's so much of it mm-hmm. around. Do you become like a nuisance where you're like moralizing people or do you just tolerate Because it?
0: it's a burden to me personally. Yeah, well, if it's really burdening your conscience, then I would go speak to that person personally about it. Just try to, you know, confront them about it in a gracious way. And more importantly, again, like you said, you want to share the gospel. You know, you haven't won... A, a, You've won a small battle if you get them to stop swearing. I want to be most concerned, obviously, they're offending God with their language, and that's what I want to be bothered by, is I want to be most bothered by what offends God, not necessarily what aggravates me personally or makes my life uncomfortable personally, but is this an offense to God, which it is? And then secondly, is it offending other people in the hospital or whatever environment you're talking about there where it's it's unpleasant to other coworkers and it's unpleasant to people that are here in the hospital don't want to have to deal with that particular language and so I would especially use it as an occasion if it's you know where patients are having to listen to that and just say look you know it's really not appropriate for patients to have to hear language that's offensive like that it's just not morally acceptable and it's also an offense to God your language and I would just want to share with you you know just you can be forgiven of your sin through you know, repentance and faith in Christ and I just want to let you know I'm praying for you and I'd you know, love to talk to you at any point yeah I, I worked in a secular office for you know, many years before I became a pastor I, I know what it's like and it's difficult you know Taylor
1: of things shouting to one another that are particularly bad and so it makes it even harder when somebody is definitely your superior and can also make your life very hard if you even in the, the least fit try to say like hey, you know that's 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 offensive to me that's not a good thing to, to be saying I mean, I know how you feel. Not only, it's, it's hard when you have a peer that's like that, you know, but man, <laughs> like all five of my professors are saying bad things to one another and laughing about it, you know, and I'm right in the middle. So it's like,
2: like I, I know how you feel. At one point, I went, I kind of like first down there, you know, I saw other people work, and I used to stay away and kind of just go read my Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one break I go read my Bible and, and, you know, if I find an opportunity I go. But then at one point I felt like, you know, I'm not reaching out to these people. I'm not, you know, I'm just kind of like going in a closet Mm -hmm. by myself. And then at one point I felt like I was getting a little too close to them. You know, because the thing is, we're not the same, but yet we're the same. Because, you know, you have things in common with them, you work with them, and so forth. But it's like trying to balance out, just trying to balance it out, you know.
0: Yeah, there's really no cookie cutter formula. I mean you want to avoid the extremes of, you know, total isolation on the one hand, where you have a message but no one to share it with, and the extreme of total immersion on the other hand, where, you know, you have people to share the message with, but the message has no power because you become just like them, you know? So, you know, Paul said in First Corinthians 5, you'd have to leave the world to escape the world. Unfortunately, all of us are going to have to absorb some of that, you know, that we would prefer not to have to deal with language like that and the ungodliness, but we're in the world. We're going to have to deal with it at some level. We don't want to become influenced to participate in it or to be stained by it. At the same time, we don't want to totally withdraw ourselves to the point where, you know, we have no gospel influence. So it's a tough battle, and there's no cookie cutter formula. You're just trying to think through what would wisdom dictate in this particular situation in that particular situation and just praying for discernment to think through that. Taylor?
1: Something else that has happened is um, Julie and I are amicable with many of our classmates and some of them have even jokingly said that if they heard one of us puss, they'd buy everybody in the class with drinks. <laughs> and, um, and I'm sad to say that I actually didn't use that as a stepping stone to explain why I tried yeah. to refrain from using that yeah. language, but I feel like when you, people, that I feel like that's one of the main things that people take note about like when they get to know me right away. Is they're like, you know, you don't tell, you know, potty jokes and you don't swear what's, go- what's going on. And like, I wish I have been better about saying, well, let me explain why I feel this way, because I feel like it's a great stepping
0: stone to the gospel, but it's something that I haven't done that well. Yeah, and I'm sure all of us have failed at points to redeem opportunities where God has just teed us up and stuff. I mean, a classic example of that is, you know, at the Shepherds Conference one year, um, John Anderson, who's the college pastor at uh, Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, he was, he was still out at uh, the Master's Seminary at the time in California, and C.J. Mahaney was coming as one of the speakers, and he went to pick him up at the airport, and they stopped at a Starbucks to get some coffee or something, and, you know, John was checking out, and the lady gave him too much money back, and he goes, oh, no, you gave me more than I need here, you know? And she goes, oh, you're so honest. And he's just kind of sitting there thinking, yeah, I really am. And CJ jumps in and goes, yeah, you should have seen him before Christ, you know. And, And there he goes trying to redeem the opportunity to share the gospel. And John's like, to my shame, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty honest guy and kind of taking credit for it. And there's CJ jumping in, trying to use it as a platform for the gospel. And I think we could all relate to John at some point or time where... You know we failed to to seize opportunities that we had, and we you know thankful for the blood of Christ that cleanses us and you know his spirit that empowers us to recognize it and then to want to grow and actually change in those particular things anything else, any other questions no. All right, well, let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, again, I'm thankful just for this opportunity we've had to discuss biblical evangelism and the gospel and where we never weary, we never tire of hearing the good news. The fact that we were justly condemned in a helpless, hopeless predicament and you provided help from the outside, divine rescue. Christ condescending to become like us, to live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we could never die in our place and rose again victorious and the fact that you've granted us the gifts of repentance and faith through the regenerating work of your spirit and a desire and a power to actually live a transformed life for your glory continue to impassion our hearts for holiness continue to cause us to love the Word of God, which ultimately leads us to you, the God of the Word, whom we love supremely, and help us to be faithful and fervent and just more frequent in our evangelistic encounters that give us a burden for lost souls and give us a passionate desire to see your glory put on display, not just through the proclamation of the Gospel, but ultimately seeing your elect saved, knowing that they'll be added to the role of the redeemed and another worshiper will be around the throne giving you the glory that you so richly deserve continue to strengthen us in these things help us to encourage one another in these things continue to use our church as a beacon of light in the midst of the darkness all around us we ask it now in christ's name and for his glory amen